0: Find out more at ReadingTheBibleLands.com This episode of Live the Bible is brought to you by Walking the Bible Lands. If you haven't been to Israel yet, or you'd like to relive your tour, these on-site videos are the next best thing to being there. Check it out at com. Hello and welcome to Live the Bible. My name is Wayne Stiles, and this is the weekly podcast that helps you connect the Bible to your daily life. In this episode, we're looking at a series on the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of Mark. And we begin, as Mark does, with good news. I'll be back in a bit, but for now, let's get right into this week's podcast. You know, the Lord has a purpose for your life, and uh, it's right on track. He's not lagging behind in it. He uh, hadn't forgot you. He didn't have you on the back burner, just kind of waiting for his cue to lighten up a little bit so that he can get back to you. God has a purpose for your life, and it is progressing exactly according to his plan. Now, we don't like the specifics of it all, but the fact is, it's true. And God's plan for your life and for my life requires change. It's another thing that we don't like. Uh, it's a challenge. We don't like significant transitions in our life. The change that we like is the change we initiate, like uh, changing a diaper, like changing a tire, uh, like changing the bed sheets. These are things that we we time, well, maybe not a tire, but These are things that we time, that we control, and that we benefit from immediately. But the change that God brings into our life is on his timetable. And for the most part, we don't like that. We don't like that because uh, it shows that we're not in control. When you come to church, if there's somebody sitting in your seat, uh, it's probably not going to be a great service. When you come to class, if you don't get in that door fast enough and get your seats saved, some of you, I mean, elbow to get your seats saved. We don't like change. We love the comfort of routine. And yet, there's a big theological word that we use in surrounding our Christian lives called sanctification. And sanctification requires change. And so when we think about it, God is committed to sanctification in our lives. God is committed to change in your life. God's goal is not to make us comfortable. It's not to um, uh, cause things to happen in our lives in such a way that we are comfortable. Though if you think about it, most of the time that's what we ask him for. When we pray about something, we're basically asking, Lord, take away my pain. Or we're asking, Lord, forgive me of some sin I've committed. There is an element of asking for forgiveness that that we ask, uh, request of him, because we know that that fellowship is broken and it needs to be restored. But honestly, real honestly, when we ask for forgiveness, a lot of times what we're asking is, God, help me feel better. Help me feel better about myself. God is committed to change in our lives, and that means significant transition. So I want to talk about that today and invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We're going to do a series, Lord willing, on the gospel of Mark. And um, who is Mark? Mark is the John Mark of the book of Acts. Remember, in the book of Acts, there was a young man that accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary trip, went along as a helper, as a servant, and yet things got pretty tough early on in the trip, and John Mark decided, you know what, this is too hard, I'm headed home, and he headed back to Jerusalem. If you do some cross-referencing in the New Testament, you come to the probable Uh, conclusion that John Mark's home in Jerusalem was the home that housed the upper room. And so here you have uh, probably a well-to-do young man, if he lived in a home that large, probably a pretty sheltered upbringing. And to go off on this mission trip with the Apostle Paul and to come up against some of the spiritual uh, struggles that they had For whatever reason, John Mark folded. He failed and decided that he needed to go home. (laughs) Paul actually referred to it in the book of, of Acts as they abandoned, that Mark abandoned them. And yet at the very end of Paul's life, toward the end of his life, the Apostle Paul had a different view of Mark and said that he was helpful. He was helpful for him. So something had happened in Mark's life, in Paul's life, that Mark, the one who failed, had a repentance, had a growth, had a change, a significant transition in his life to where not only would he be helpful in Paul's ministry, but the Holy Spirit would see fit to inspire Mark to write one of the four gospels. This man who had failed in the ministry came to such a place that he could turn around and write one of the Gospels. Now, of course, each of the Gospels emphasizes a different aspect of Jesus. You could think of it like the facets of a diamond. You've got a a costly stone, you just turn it around and you look at the different perspectives of the same stone, and that's what we get in the Gospels. Luke uh, focuses primarily, now these are big, broad generalizations, but Luke focuses primarily on Jesus as the son of man focuses on Jesus as the son of man in other words God's ideal human here you have Luke presenting him as son of man John presents him as the son of God Matthew presents him primarily as king and Mark presents him as servant so you have these these broad uh, what seem like contradictions, but really they just are bookends of the great life of Jesus. He is king, and yet he is servant. He is man, and yet he is God. And Mark focuses, this this individual who has failed, focuses on Jesus as a servant. And one more thing I think is particularly noteworthy, and that is you have a couple of the, the gospel writers Matthew and John, who were also apostles. So they are first hand witnesses of what went on, and what they wrote is by and large what they saw. Luke just did tons of research. He tells us that in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. He says that he did a lot of research and wrote things down in an orderly way. But Mark, where did Mark get his information? Mark was a disciple of the Apostle Peter. And so, you know, it maybe is a little bit of an overstatement, but the Gospel of Peter is almost the Gospel of Mark. You have elements of the Gospel of Mark that highlight Peter, and we'll see some of those as we go through this. But again, it's noteworthy because you think about the Apostle Peter, here is another man who failed miserably in his devotion and ministry of Jesus Christ, and yet in God's providence, the Lord would partner. Peter or would put Mark under the the, the, the tutelage, the uh, the discipleship of, of a of a man who failed, and would teach him how to come back and be useful in God's service. So useful that he would write this significant book, this gospel, on Jesus as God's divine servant. Well, let's begin here, right in verse one, and uh, be introduced to this this great book, Mark. 1 verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Pause for a second. The gospel. We think of gospel, we think of a lot of things. We think of gospel music, we think uh, the gospel truth. Your parents probably drilled that into you. My, My father's word was gospel, whether it was right or wrong, it was gospel. Um. But the good news, we're told here, is, is the gospel. It, I think it's sort of a, an unfortunate translation when it says the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, there are so many words that we translate from the New Testament that just kind of have their own meaning, but we don't really know what that meaning is. Uh, gospel simply means good news. When someone gives you good news in your life, they're giving you, in essence, a gospel a bit of good news. And so the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God, it's the beginning, and yet it isn't new. Because he goes on in verse 2 to say this is something that's been promised for centuries. Look at verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of of the one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins." So he quotes, he says Isaiah. Isaiah gets top billing here. There's actually more than one prophet quoted. Malachi's in there as well. But Isaiah, the primary prophet of all those quoted, Gets top billing, and the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ is the continuation of God's plan to save mankind. And notice that the beginning of this good news began with preparation. Um, God sent a man. Is it said here? I will send my messenger ahead of you. This man we will be introduced to. We are we're introduced to here in verse four. John the Baptist this messenger, John the Baptist. And his words are very simple. Make ready. Um, Make ready the way of the Lord. This is what John's primary purpose was, was to get the path straight. And this is basically talking about something that happened in that culture. Whenever a king would come to a land, they would send kind of an envoy ahead ahead to to make the the way ready. If the road was rough, they would smooth it. If it was too low, they would raise it. If they needed to build a bridge, they'd build it. If they needed to get rocks out of the way, whatever they needed to do to make the road ready for the king, to prepare the way, they would send a crew ahead so that when the king came, he'd have a smooth road to travel on. That's what's talking about here, but not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. And the geography of the wilderness of Judea, if any of you have ever been to Israel and been in the area uh, there around the Dead Sea, between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, you travel through 18 miles of the most rugged part of the country. And looking left and right as you travel down that road, you see some rough, rough road. This is the context in which John made this statement, or which John, this, uh, this prophecy is fulfilled of John. The wilderness that John preached in was a wilderness of rough terrain. And John goes in, basically, into a a wilderness that is a great metaphor of what the heart of Israel is like. The same is true of our hearts. When the Lord has to do something in our lives, he will send people on ahead to get that road ready. Think about the time you've had a a significant transition in your life. Um... More than likely, you didn't just wake up and all of a sudden something happened. Now, maybe you woke up and you were surprised by some transition that occurred, but if you look back at it in hindsight, most often you will see that the Lord placed people in your path to prepare the way for that transition. That, they, that someone would remove rocks that were in the way, or someone would build you up in a certain way, or something would happen to where finally you're able and willing to hear once God does speak to you. The role of John the Baptist in Israel was to come and to get them ready to hear the words that Jesus would say. John's message was a message that prepared the way. He appeared in the wilderness preaching, it says, a baptism of repentance. Once again, we're dealing with a translation here and literally we're dealing with a transliteration. You know the difference between a translation and a transliteration? Baptism is a transliteration. We hear the word baptism and all of us who grew up Southern Baptist immediately, we have a definition uh, associated with it. Those of you who grew up Presbyterian have a different definition to baptism. Those of you who grew up Catholic probably had another uh, definition. But those those who grew up Jewish would have an altogether different understanding of this word, and so the and it, honestly, translating it baptism is a bit of a cop out. I think I've heard Doctor Toussaint teach this a few times, and it's so it's such a helpful truth to remember. Uh, in the original language, the word "baptō" means to dip or immerse. Basically, it means to immerse, and the reason that the translators didn't translate it. To translate the word bapto would be to translate it uh, preaching an immersion of repentance. But they translated it, they transliterated it, basically you take what's true in the Greek, bapto, and you just kinda anglicize it, baptism. So you're not telling us what it means. You're not translating it. You're just kinda taking the same word and carrying it over so that whatever tradition wants to, can interpret baptism however they want. So it works in any denomination. The problem is it doesn't translate the text. And so we're kind of left with this ambiguous, what does baptism mean? Well, let me tell you what it means in our tradition. But what it meant in the original language was to immerse. Now, immersion was nothing new to Jews. They had been doing that for a long, long time. If you look back in the Old Testament, ritual, ritual immersion was part of their culture. You go to Jerusalem today, along the southern steps; there are ritual baths or mikvah, mikvot they, they're called. That uh, when, before you would go up and worship, you would immerse yourself in water so that you were ritually pure before you would go up onto the Temple Mount and worship. So being immersed was nothing new. Mm-hmm. It does nothing new at all for a Jew. For us, we think baptism is simply something you do when you trust in Christ. The act of immersion was nothing new to a Jew. But a baptism for repentance, that is new. Because a Jew would think that only Gentile converts need to be immersed or only Jews who had been defiled. John says everybody needs to, be, needs to have this kind of baptism because everybody needs to repent. And as a result, we're told all Israel, all the country of Judea, was going out to him as a result. Verse 5, And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by, by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. You know, we've got so many diets today. Have you noticed? We got the Daniel diet. We've got, you know, the the Old Testament diet. You know, God set it up this way in Leviticus and that's the way we ought to do it too. You don't see the John the Baptist diet that much, do you? <laughs> John didn't have a good marketer when it came to to his diet. But Notice something. Remember who was John? John the Baptist was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. You read in the in the in the Gospel of Luke talks about his story, this marvelous, miraculous birth and conception. John grew up the son of a priest. As the son of a priest, what should John's job have been? A priest. That's the way it worked. Priests were priests because they were sons of priests. And yet here John is not in Jerusalem serving as a priest. He's in the wilderness as a prophet. John isn't wearing the garb of a priest, which was ornamental, almost kingly attire. He's wearing a leather belt around his waist and camel's hair. He doesn't eat what priests eat, which were the sacrifices. Instead, he eats locusts and wild honey. Now, John was not a rebel, but he was bringing about a change, a significant transition in the history of Israel. John was bringing about a transition. Actually, God was bringing about a transition, and he was revealing something. Uh, He was revealing something, a a very significant change. John was clothed this way, and if you've got a cross-reference to verse 6 to 2nd Kings chapter 1 verse 8 that ought to make your mind spring to what Old Testament character John was clothed a lot like whom Elijah exactly he's clothed like Elijah and we'll see as the gospels go forward that John the Baptist was the promised Elijah to come that the book of Malachi predicted and so you have the servant my messenger ahead of you in verse 2 Malachi also talked about Elijah who was to come, and now here you have John the Baptist appearing on the scene dressed like Elijah. And so anyone with a sense of of awareness would go, hmm, if this is the Elijah, who is this man going to point to? Because we're told that this messenger would prepare the way for the Lord to come. And that's exactly what John the Baptist was doing. God was revealing that the purpose of the Old Testament had run its course. Paul taught that the purpose of the law was to reveal sin. John the Baptist appears on the scene preaching a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. The Old Testament, by this time, had done its job of saying, Israel, you cannot earn your salvation based on the law. The law's purpose primary is to show you your need, that you cannot live it on your own. The law revealed sin. Now, God was going to make a significant transition to show how that sin can be paid for. Not just through the sacrifices, but through the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. Now, keep your finger there in Mark chapter 1 and turn back to Joshua chapter 1. I want to show you a couple of other very significant transitions and then bring these transitions together. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. Joshua 1, verse 1. It says this, It came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Now, I'll flip over to chapter 3 and look down at verse 14. God had just said, I want you to cross the Jordan. Now, chapter 3, verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks in all the days of harvest, the waters which were flowing down from from above, stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, And those which were flowing down toward the Sea of the Araba, the Salt Sea, meaning the Dead Sea, were completely cut off, so the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. So a couple of things I'll point out there. You think, well, that's kind of an odd uh, cross-reference. Wayne, why don't we turn back to this? Well, when you, I think it was my granddad that told me, whenever you see three trees planted in, in a row in a line, you know that somebody put them there. Either that or there was a fence there and birds have sat, sat on the fence. But either way, a human was involved, whether it's the fence or whether it's planting three trees. You see a couple of trees, you think, eh, they're not really in a row, it's just a couple of trees. But you see three trees right in a row, you realize a human has been involved. There's been intent behind that. We're going to see three trees lined up. Hey everyone, Wayne here. There's nothing that's going to make you fall in love with the book of Acts and the New Testament epistles, like traveling to the places where they occurred. Well, you can. Registration is open, and it's well underway for my upcoming tour and cruise to Greece and Turkey in the footsteps of the great Apostle Paul. There's even an optional extension to the great cities of Rome and Pompeii. Going to these Bible lands will change the way you read the New Testament. I'm certain of that. Just see the video and the complete itinerary at waynestyles.com slash tours. And now... Back to the podcast. We're going to see three trees lined up here with these cross references looking at Jesus, looking at Joshua, and now let's look at one more place. Look at 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6 at the third tree, or I guess if you're thinking chronologically, this is the second tree with Jesus being the third. And then we'll talk about the intent behind these three trees lined up. Second Kings chapter 2, I think I said six. sorry, Second Kings chapter 2, verse 6. Second Kings two verse 6. Then Elijah said to him, meaning Elisha, "Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance, while two of them stood by the Jordan. Elijah took his mantle and folded it together and struck the waters, and they were divided here and there, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha said, Please, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And he said, You've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be be so for you. Uh, But if not, then it shall not be so. And as they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. So let's see if we can pull all these trees together here. Joshua, standing opposite the Jordan River, and God tells Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now there's a transition of leadership from Moses to Joshua. Or if you think of it in Hebrew, from Moshe to Yeshua. From Moses to, to Joshua. From Moshe to Yeshua. 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 Um, And we, of course, know that our Lord's name is taken from that, Yeshua. Opposite the Jordan River, the Jordan River parts, divides. Opposite Jericho, and they cross on dry ground. Elijah and Elisha. Who is Elijah in the New Testament but John the Baptist? And so Elisha then would represent Jesus. If you look at the the ministry of Elisha, he did more miracles than, I don't know, how many prophets put together. When you look at the life of Christ, it's very similar. At the very same place, the very same place geographically, the Jordan River, across from Jericho, the river parts and they cross on dry ground. Elijah is taken up to heaven and there is a transition of leadership from Elijah to Elisha. So you see the pattern? Moses and, Eli- uh, and Joshua, Jordan River parts across from Jericho, same spot. Elijah and Elisha, across from Jericho, the Jordan River parts, exact same spot. John and Jesus, the New Testament, Elijah and Elisha, the Jordan River, across from Jericho. What would we expect to happen to the Jordan River? That it would part, right? But it doesn't. Look what happens. Back in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Verse 7. As he was preaching and saying, After me is one coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, John the Baptist had crowds thronging to him. He was mighty. Everyone viewed John as a prophet. And yet John viewed himself as a servant. I'm not fit to untie his sandals. I'm not even fit to untie one thong from his sandals. He is mightier than I. John admits that he's unworthy. One reason John says that he only baptized with water, but that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The word for baptism, we've already talked about a little bit, has one meaning, literally, to immerse, but it also has a metaphorical meaning that, that's also literal. That sounds like a contradiction, but it isn't. Let me let me maybe give you an example. When I say I'm starving, I don't mean I'm starving. What I mean is when's lunch? I'm really hungry. I use this, this exaggeration, this metaphor, to say something that you interpret literally. If I say, I'm stuffed, I don't mean I'm stuffed. That's an exaggeration that you interpret literally to mean he's full. In the same way, you can use a metaphor, and the metaphor is so well known that you can interpret it literally, just like I just say, well, I'm starving and I'm stuffed. Baptism was that way, in that it not only had the meaning of being dipped or immersed, but it also had the idea of when uh, someone would dip a fabric into dye, that, that cloth, that white cloth was in the dye, and it was so changed by that process, it came up the same color as the dye, and it was identified with that dye. Baptism came to, be, uh, came to, to mean Identification not simply immersion, that you are placed into something, you are dipped into it, that now you become part of that. You now become identified with whatever it is you're placed into. So when we are baptized into the name of Jesus Christ, we are now identified with Jesus Christ. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit is also a way of being identified with the Spirit of God, or in other words, converted to Jesus Christ. So when, when John says repentance, uh, repentance, baptism of repentance is a change of mind. We think of baptism as, uh, as re- repentance as a change of action. We tell somebody, you need to repent, brother. We don't mean that he needs to change his mind, we need to, he needs to change his actions. But repentance, the word actually means, originally, uh, a change of mind and not just changing your mind, but changing your mindset. You were going one direction in your life, and the repentance is that now you have a completely different mindset. You were going another direction in your life. A baptism of repentance means when you are baptized, you are saying, I have a change of mind. I have a change of direction. A repentance of my sins is not that I simply choose to not do my sins anymore. But it is a recognition that the direction of sin is not the direction I need to go. I need to go the direction that God leads. So let me give you just a life principle from this text so far. And really, it's the only principle that we'll take from the text today. And it's, it's sort of a command that the text gives. To change the direction of your thinking. Change the direction of your thinking from your own interests. To those of Jesus Christ. You think, well, Wayne, I've already done that. Well, just hang with me. Change the direction of your thinking from your own interests to those of Jesus Christ. Repentance, change of thinking, is a change of commitment, it is a change of allegiance, it is a change of mindset. And John begins at the place that is the very hardest for us to change. The greatest struggle for any of us to change is the change against self-interest. It's, the, it's what we struggle against the most. It's the initial struggle that our parents in the Garden of Eden had, and it's the struggle that you had on the way up here to church. It's the struggle you're also going to have as soon as we say amen and try to figure out where you're going to have lunch. <laughs> self-interest. Adam and Eve told... In the garden, was told in the garden by Satan that God does not have your best interests at heart. Instead, you really know what's best for you. And so you need to make that call. You need to make the decision of what's best for you. And if God's word fits in with that, that's great. Go along with God's word. But you know what? It doesn't. It doesn't. And let me tell you why it doesn't because God's trying to keep his best from you. The one tree that he told you not to eat from is the solution to the problems in your life. You know, that lie still works for us. We've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in every one of our backyards. And the temptation to pick and eat from that fruit, whether it is whatever it is in your life that you feel like... uh, this is the solution. This is what I've been waiting for. It really boils down to the devil's lie of telling us that we know better than what God knows for our life. So let me say that principle again and see if now all of a sudden it doesn't fit. Change the direction of your thinking from your own interests to those of Jesus Christ. You see, repentance is not just something you do before you become a Christian. It's also what the Apostle Paul called in Romans 12, the renewal of the mind. It is something that we do on a daily basis. Repentance or the continual growth, the transition of the mindset from self-interest to God's interest. Or, and you look at the big broad scope of the, of the Gospel of Mark, am I, going to be, am I going to be a servant of myself or am I going to be a servant of God? Just like Jesus did not come to be served but to serve And to offer his life as a ransom for many. John prepared the nation by challenging them to change their thinking. Jesus shows up on the scene. Now finally the road is prepared and here comes the one for whom it has been prepared. Look at verse 9. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, notice he was immersed, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Now, verse 10 Let me just read that again. Immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opening. Opening is a bit of a tame translation. Do you have a a marginal reading there for the word opening? Torn. Torn. Torn apart is really a much better translation. Actually, literally, it's passive. Being parted. In other words, God was doing the parting. So let's go back to the three trees that are lined up. Back to the three trees. You've got Joshua and Moses, Jordan River, parts. Elijah, Elisha, the Jordan River, parts. John and Jesus, it's not the Jordan River that parts. What parts? The heavens part. Here's another. You could almost call this a fourth tree. The only other time that that word for being ripped is used in the Gospel of Mark occurs... occurs uh, where is it? I don't know the chapter here. Chapter 15, verse 38, when the veil of the temple is torn. And again, God does the tearing. So at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the heavens are ripped open as Jesus appears on the scene the very end of the Gospel of Mark when Jesus dies, and another way the, the heavens are ripped open again because now there is access to God because of Christ's sacrifice that was never there before. You have the, the, the problem of sin coming to a head. Jesus, uh, John the Baptist saying baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins and now the whole Gospel of Mark goes forward with Jesus showing himself that he is the servant who's come to give his life as a ransom for many, the very end of the Gospel of Mark, the veil is torn showing that that problem now has been solved. That Jesus has given his life as a ransom for many, the servant of God, has made a way for all sinners to come into the presence of God. If Jesus was baptized, uh, Why was Jesus baptized if he didn't have sin? Well, remember what we talked about, what baptism means. Baptism means not just literally being immersed, but it also means identification. And Jesus being baptized doesn't mean that he was a sinner, but he was identifying with sinners. How do we know that? Because the very next thing that happens is his temptation. He is baptized. The Father God tells him, and you, I am well pleased. And then verse 12, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Don't miss the connection. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. Uh, upon Jesus, and then immediately the Spirit impels Jesus. Impel, that's not a word we use a lot. It basically means to urge or to command or to persuade, to impel Jesus to go into the wilderness, uh, and he was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Don't miss the connection that the Father is well-pleased with Jesus, and yet Jesus was tempted. In your life, you can be right in the dead center of the will of God. Don't feel like because if you enter a season of temptation, then all of a sudden there must be something wrong with you. Maybe everything you're doing right, and that's why it's happening, just like it was with Jesus Christ. Um, so don't feel like if you're enduring great temptation that maybe you're out of the will of God, and maybe you're right in the middle of the will of God. How could Jesus literally be tempted? I mean, he was God. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, the Bible tells us. So how could Jesus be tempted? Well, ultimately, it's beyond, this sounds sort of like a cop-out, but it's like, you know, as soon as you can explain the Trinity to me, maybe I can help explain how Jesus can be tempted and genuinely be tempted. He was a man, and every bit the sense that you and I are human, Jesus was human. He just also had a divine nature. You and I are simply human, but Jesus was human and in addition had a divine nature. So let me ask you this question, during his temptation did the humanity of Jesus weaken his deity or did the deity of Jesus strengthen his humanity? It's the second. You can think of it this way, imagine that this microphone is not a bar of uh, aluminum but it is a bar of lead. This is a bar of lead. I could probably take this bar of lead and just twist it. Lead is very, very malleable. But imagine that a bar of lead like that, equate that with humanity. Very weak, very impressionable, very bendable, almost breakable. Very fragile when it comes to temptation. But if I was to take this bar of lead and weld it to a steel, a railroad tie uh, not a tie but a, a, a railroad rail all of a sudden you can't bend that thing if i was to to weld this to that the lead to the steel now all of a sudden the lead doesn't weaken the steel but the steel strengthens the lead you cannot bend that lead even though it is every bit the bit of lead that it was before that's what happened in the temptation jesus was legitimately tempted And yet the reality is there was no way that he could fail, because he was God. But here's a great truth that we need to take from this. Jesus being identified with us as sinners. Let me read to you. You don't have to turn there. You can just jot it down if you'd like, or just listen. To Hebrews 4.15, we're told that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus identified with sinners, with us. Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus came out successful. And what he brought from that was an empathy and a sympathy and a compassion for us as sinners. Because he knows what it's like to be tempted. I mean, toe-to-toe with Satan. Not many of us have had to deal with that. And Jesus did. He gets it. So, That principle I shared with you earlier, see if it doesn't have a greater context in your mind for you to change the direction of your thinking from your own interest to those of Jesus Christ. John pointed to Jesus. John pointed to Jesus. Let me ask you this. Does your life point to Jesus? Does your life point to Jesus Christ? Does your time, does your money, do your abilities and gifts, do your words, does your attitude, your priorities, does that reflect your interests or Jesus Christ? Do you make decisions based on what will benefit you or ultimately Jesus Christ? See, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark wastes no time in telling us The purpose of the book, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that God has sent the one who was promised from the Old Testament to solve the sin problem in your life by faith in one named Jesus Christ, who came not only to die for our sins, but also to identify with us as sinners, to empathize with us as sinners, and to live a life, a model life as a servant, a life that we also should emulate. John the Baptist said it well. He must increase, I must decrease. After me is one coming who is mightier than, I'm not fit to undo his sandals. That's who we are when we look at Jesus. Our lives are to glorify the one who came to lay down his life for us. Gospel of Mark, it's a great gospel, and I really look forward, Lord willing, to walking through this book together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this short Gospel of Mark, for these introductory verses that set the scene for us. They give us the problem, they introduce us to the tension, they give us the enemy in Satan, they give us the hero with our Lord Jesus Christ, and they even, with the, with the Jordan and the heavens parting, give us the, uh, the wonderful good news that is proclaimed in the very first verse. That is, that the, the heavens are ripped open, the veil will be ripped open, and the problem of our sin separating us from a holy God is removed through our Savior. Well, Lord, that's good news. But we take the application much beyond a repentance that allows us to believe in Jesus for forgiveness. But we take that repentance into our daily life. It's not enough to simply believe in Jesus and then to wait for the rapture. Our goal is to glorify our Lord and Savior in our daily decisions and our priorities and the the words and attitudes of our our heart. So give us that grace, Lord, as we say amen, as we head off to make that great decision, where are we going to have lunch? (laughs) And so many other decisions, Father, that uh, can give you glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for joining me on Live the Bible. I hope you found something here that's encouraged you in your walk with God. By the way, would you take a moment right now and rate this podcast on iTunes? That will help keep the podcast visible so that others can find it and be encouraged right along with you. There's a link to help you do that at waynestyles.com slash podcast. Next week, we continue with a podcast called How to Keep First Things First. And I'd also like to say if this podcast has encouraged you, I'm asking you to help me keep it going. You can now give a tax-deductible gift to help share the Live the Bible podcast with literally thousands of people each week. To give a one-time or monthly donation, just go to LiveTheBiblePodcast.com and click on Donate. That's LiveTheBiblePodcast.com, and click on Donate. Thanks so much, and God bless. My friend, I hope you will read the Bible in 2024, and I'd love for us to read it together, seeing the places where it all happened. Check it out now at readingthebiblelands.com.